Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. Let us read the three verses that comprise this psalm. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing even life forevermore. And that is the reading of God's word. Let us pray once again. Father, we commit the preaching and the exhortation and the reading of your word to you, praying that your Holy Spirit may illumine us, teach us, instruct us, and praying that you may be honored, your Son glorified. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Harmonizing in music, it's, it's an interesting exercise. I remember many, many years ago, nearly 40 years ago, when I started singing in musical groups in church, that somebody gave me my part. I was a baritone or a bass, depending on the group I sang. If, if, the, if the group was specialized, it was a group of six, 16 singing men, I was a baritone there because my, my bass wouldn't go that low. But there was another group that was mixed, and because there were altos and sopranos there, I could do the bass voice. So what was interesting is that whenever I had to go through my own part, it was horrendous. My favorite hymn is, And Can It Be? But if I sing to you, And can it be that I should... It sounds horrendous. But when you sing it with a choir, when you sing it in harmony, that bass sounds beautiful accompanying the melody. Well, unity in God's people is like that. We are different, very different, but the psalmist says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in harmony. How horrendous a lonely voice or part sounds how beautiful when it is harmonized in a composition, how pleasurable and rich to the ears. Even God, being omniscient, omnipotent, almighty, <laughs> infinite, even God chose to advance his kingdom, to advance his cause through a group of people, through the church, through a body of different parts that the New Testament says work together in harmony until the mature stature of Christ is reached. So if even God does that, how much for us to understand the beauty, the pleasure of brethren dwelling together in harmony. Looking at this psalm, you will see that in some of your Bibles it says, it is a song of, ac of ascents. What is a song of ascents? Well, there are psalms from 120 to 134. Those psalms are, have been entitled that way. Whether that title is inspired or not, it's a debate of scholars, and I'm not going to get there. But 
the Jews gave them those titles, the scribes gave them those titles, because those psalms were used as the pilgrims were ascending to Jerusalem for worship. They say that there were three main feasts that they would go, for sure the Feast of Passover. The reason being is that God had commanded that there were to be only one sanctuary. All of Israel would have to bring their sacrifices and their offerings to the only one sanctuary, at the beginning in the tabernacle, then the temple. And they had to do that to the appointed Levitical priests that were the only ones authorized to perform worship. God knew the value of dwelling together for worship. A wicked man named Jeroboam in Scripture also knew the value of unity in worship. When the kingdom split after Solomon and Rehoboam took the kingdom of the south and Jeroboam took the kingdom of the north and Jeroboam took with him ten of the twelve tribes in the south remained Judah and Benjamin By the way, when you hear Paul saying that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, in the days of Paul, only two tribes had inscriptions. The other ten were lost. So Paul said, I'm a real Hebrew of Hebrews. You can trace my genealogy. That's what he meant. So when Jeroboam had those ten tribes in the north, he said, hmm, there's only one sanctuary, and it is in Jerusalem, the capital of the south. If they go every year and gather to worship they may get together also and plot to oust me from power. Because as they are united worshiping, what keeps them from also uniting from getting rid of me? So Jeroboam conceived the wicked plot of creating a replica of the altar in Jerusalem in Samaria. So that the ten tribes with him would worship in Samaria and not unite with their brethren in the north. That altar in Samaria was the downfall and the stumbling block of Israel because it led eventually to the worship of Baal and to the worship of Asherah and to the destruction of those ten tribes in the kingdom of the south. But Jeroboam understood that worship unites people. He built that altar to prevent what the psalm that we just read in our hearing recommends how pleasant how good it is for brethren to dwell together in harmony now when we go to the structure of the psalm first thing we notice is a poem remember when we are reading poetry we have to keep in mind that we have to apply the rules of poetry to our reading it is not the same as reading a letter from paul It is not the same as reading a historical account from one of the historical books in Scripture. This is poetry, and as such, it follows the rules of poetry, and we must read it and interpret it according to those rules. And this psalm in particular is written in the form of a chiasm. Chiasm, or chiastic format, it comes from the letter, the Greek letter key, which is our X. So if you picture an X you will find that in two lines or one of the lines of the X, you have the same idea, and then on the other line of the X, you have the same idea. What do you have in the first line of the X? You have an affirmation in verse 1. 
how good and pleasant it is when people or brethren dwell together in harmony. The same idea goes all the way to verse 3. Why is it good and pleasant? For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even even life forevermore. And then on this line, you have an illustration. In verse 2, it is like precious oil that runs from the head of the from, from the head to the robes of Aaron. And the second part of verse 2, it's another illustration. It is as if the dew of Mount Hermon fell on Jerusalem. Once you get the picture of the psalm, it's a lot easier to understand what is it about. So we don't have to go crazy in trying to interpret every word and every syllable. No, it's a poem, and the poem is given an affirmation. It is good and pleasant. When people dwell together in harmony, it looks like when at the ordination of Aaron, they poured oil on his head and it went down to his robes. Or it looks like if Mount Hermon's dew would fall on Jerusalem. Let us zoom into the text. Unity is required and it's demanded for worship. When David wrote Psalm 133, Obviously, the kingdom was united. The 12 tribes were together under David. The split happened after Solomon's death. When, as I said, Rehoboam took the kingdom of the south, Jeroboam took the kingdom of the north. Now, even after the deportations, even after the kingdom was split, Israel was taken away, there was this reality that Israel was still the covenant people of God. They were still united under God. And to this day, we know that wherever you go, Jews gather together. Israelites know each other. Or actually, Jews, not Israelites. Israelite can be a citizen of Israel without being a Jew. But you know they gather together because their identity under God keeps them united. And the psalmist is expressing that corporate awareness of that identity under the God we worship and how it creates a pleasurable sight of unity. Unity is desirable. It is pleasant. The passage in the original actually starts with a, it's an expression or a command. It's a look. Behold, it's actually one word, hene. It's a pleasant sight. It's like if you are, how do I put it? It's an expression of admiration. Imagine you are going through Tamayami Airport, close by here. And you see all those Cessnas there. Single engine Cessnas. It's like a common sight. But imagine that one day just walking by that one of those roads adjacent, you'd find a raptor. An F-35 parked there. Look, a raptor. You would have that expression of, wow, this is an amazing sight. That's exactly what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist, the psalmist is pointing to, a, to an incredible sight. Behold, how pleasurable, how good it is when brethren dwell together in harmony. It is a sight worth contemplating. Divisions. You know what are divisions? According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, divisions are God's method to show forth who is approved. 
It is not that divisions will not occur. Don't aim for, oh, I wish that there were never divisions. I need to find a church where there are no divisions. I know if you go to a true church, you will find divisions. Because that is how God (laughs) sifts who is approved and who is not. So it is a good thing when there are divisions over sin or over truth. However, the truth remains. It is a pleasant sight when brethren, when God's people, when those who are united following the same end and goal, namely God's glory, His kingdom, and His righteousness, when they dwell together in unity or harmony. My wife obliges me to go to basketball games whenever she finds free tickets. And when we go together, I try to tell her the same. Don't look at the ball. Look at the players. Watch the players as they move. And if you master the ability to not look at the guy dribbling the ball or the guy shooting, but at all the other nine guys, the sight is pleasurable. Or if you go to a baseball game, And there is a hit or an extra base. And you see everybody running after the ball. But you see how the different players in defense move and position themselves to cover for one another. It is a choreography. It is beautiful. Because they are all aiming at the same thing. It's either scoring or stopping the other guy from scoring. Here is Paul saying, behold. What a choreograph. When people of different positions live and play and work together in harmony. And it is no different with God's people, of course. Who's competing with me? Voices. They say that you can talk to yourself. My wife always checks that on me. When she hears me talking to myself, she always asks, but are you answering to yourself? She says, no, no, not yet. But if you happen to answer to yourself, then make sure you don't lose a fight against yourself. Because then then you need to be taken to the madhouse. In the meantime, while the voice is talking and competing with me, no different with God's people, a church, a gathering, a group of believers working together in harmony. It's a beautiful sight. Why? Because our nature is to build walls. Remember when Irma came? I used to have a wooden fence. And I have one, two, three, four neighbors. And I have Simba, those of you who know my dog. Well, when, the, when Irma took my fence or, or broke holes through the fence, I had all those neighbors frantically calling, do you need help to fix the fence? They didn't want to help me. They just wanted to keep Simba away from their turf, right? And okay, no worries, I'll, I, I fix the fence. Because that's what we tend to do. This is my land, this is my yard, this is my fence. Lawnmower guy comes and cuts your grass, and you happen to have one of those shared gardens, and you see the line. Like, this is the line that he cuts, and the other one is uncut. Because it's my turf. The psalmist says, how pleasant, how beautiful, how good it is when brethren dwell together in harmony. 
it is even more pleasant, and that's a personal note, when their skin color, their culture, their native tongue, their habits, their background are completely different from one another. And yet, under Christ, they dwell together in harmony. That is a revelation of, that is a site of Revelation 5, isn't it? People from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping together the Lamb. So when somebody says Christianity is white, really come to Cornerstone or go to a black church or go to a Chinese church or just go travel the world and see how in every nation the testimony of the gospel is present through different churches because that is what heaven will be like. God made of one Adam all the lineage in heaven, in, on earth. And from the race of Adam, those whom Christ, the second Adam, came to redeem and rescue, God will also lift and raise his church, the redeemed. So here's the psalmist praising unity. Why? Because unity illustrates redemption. How so? He uses now the comparisons or the illustrations. First, the oil on Aaron's bird. Beard, I'm sorry. <laughs> the anointing oil, the day of his ordination. I would imagine that sight when Aaron is being called, anointed, and established as the high priest of God's people, as the mediator, the one who once a year would come with a sacrifice offering and spread the blood through the mercy seat and offer to God the atonement through which God's people's sins would be forgiven, a type of the great high priest who came to be the offerer and the offering of himself on the cross. And that oil flowed down to his beard. I like the imagery because it starts here on the head, and then he starts to touch his beard and his face, but he keeps rolling and goes down all the way to the last hem of his garment. And that tells you that it had to be a lot of oil. It was not just a little drop. If it would have been me with my shampoo, I make sure that I just put a little bit so that that shampoo bottle lasts. No, no, no. They would do it like some of you kids do it. And put it, put it, all, pour it all together. That's exactly how the anointing of Aaron was. It was abundant oil. And it was a sweet perfume. Now, where's the illustration that the perfume of the anointing was not one product? It was a mix of herbs and of substances that had a special formula. And that mix of things created a sweet smelling fragrance, nice, something to be around that created delight. And it was abundant. And that is the illustration David is using. It is like the mix that is used to anoint priests. It is varied, but once you put it together, it becomes something sweet and good-smelling. Spurgeon said, It is a diffusive, a mix of ingredients thing. Being poured on his head, the fragrant oil flowed down upon Aaron's head. 
and dropped upon his garments until the last hem was anointed with it. And even so does brotherly love extend its benign power and bless all who are beneath its influence. What a true statement. Brotherly love, when expressed and manifest in dwelling together in harmony, blesses whomever comes around it, visitor or part of it, because it is a sight and sign of redemption. And the other illustration the psalmist uses is the dew of Hermon. Mount Hermon, for those of you who've visited, it's, it's, in, the, it's in the Lebanon. It's, it's, in, it's away from Jerusalem. It is not a, a, a big mountain. In, actually, in Israel, there are not huge mountains in the Israel today. But Mount Hermon is a pretty tall mountain. It's almost 3,000 meters, close to 10,000 feet or more. But it's in Lebanon. So the dew of Mount Hermon, which would become snow-capped in winter, would not reach Jerusalem. That's not what the psalmist is saying. What the psalmist is saying is Jerusalem is so hot in the summer and so dry because they have basically two seasons, dry and rainy, pretty much like Miami. But, it, but, but contrary to us, that we have humid, hot, rainy. They have dry, hot, like the desert. So imagine living in a place that it's hot, and desertic and dry if somebody in the middle of the summer in August would pour on you fresh water. That's what the David is saying in the illustration. It is like if that snow-capped mountain of Mount Hermon, which, by the way, would irrigate the valley and even make it to the Jordan, but if that would make it all the way to Jerusalem, oh, how happy we would be with this fresh water on our heads and on our bodies. That's exactly the illustration used. Brethren, dwelling in unity and in harmony, it is a refreshing thing. You might remember the saying from Solomon that fights among brethren are like the locks on a castle. And if you know that, if you have siblings that you have fought or maybe are still fighting with and have issues with, you know the pain and the grief of fighting with your siblings. Well, the opposite is true. When, when there is harmony and unity and love with siblings, it is like the refreshing water as if Mount Hermon would cover Jerusalem. And unity is a token of God's blessing on the church because the psalm ends saying, for there where there are brethren dwelling together in unity, there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Unity is God's conduit for gospel blessings. Now, I'm not going to make a rule of thumb here, saying, well, if we're not being blessed, it's because we're not united. No, but the psalmist says, <laughs> where brethren dwell together in harmony, God sends his blessings, even eternal life. Obviously, gospel blessings. You may have a, an external display of prosperity, even as a congregation, but that is not necessarily God's blessing if it is not accompanied by brethren dwelling together in harmony. Now, what's the practical point of this, or what's the conclusion to this? Well, 
First of all, according to the New Testament, unity is a gift of the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 1, 2, 3. You can hear it or read it with me. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And what the passage is saying is not that we are the creators or producers of unity. The point of Psalm 133 and of me exhorting from it is not that now we go out there and devise a way to create unity. Ephesians 4 doesn't say that we are the producers of unity. Ephesians 4 says that the unity comes from the Holy Spirit. It is a given. Where there is no unity and there is no peace, then the Holy Spirit is not there either because the Bible says God is a God of peace. You can have everything else. (laughs) If you don't have peace, you don't have God. He is a God of peace. That unity is produced by the Spirit. Then what is my responsibility in the deal? To preserve it. Preserve it in love. Jesus' prayer in John 17. What did he pray? For those who had believed and for those who would believe through their word, that they may be what? That they may be one. O Father, he prayed. Even just as you and I are one. And he's talking to the Father. We may say, but that prayer was not fulfilled because the church is divided. No, it's not. The church is one. The people of God is one. Those who are redeemed of the Lord are one. Oh, they may gather in different places and even have different persuasions and concepts and even doctrines. But if they are of Christ, of Christ they are. We may appear to be split, but we are not in God's eyes. Had a conversation with a good friend, Orthodox, by the way. I'm the heretic among my friends, okay? So my friends are Orthodox because I need to be close to people who are Orthodox so I don't go the deep end. He had this request from a Seventh-day Adventist group to use their church for a an ordination of several pastors in the region. So he calls me and says, what do you think? I says, oh, I don't know. I need, I need to pray about this and, and, and get back with you. So I prayed and prayed and prayed and thought and prayed and then got back with him. And we coincided in our thoughts. He said, well, you're a famous person. Whatever you do is going to have an impact. So you have to be careful in what you answer. If it were us in Cornerstone, nobody knows who we are. But everybody knows who you are. Not only in your country, but elsewhere. You have to be careful. He says, but I believe that even though I disagree with Seventh-day Adventist doctrine, in general, I disagree with that prophetess that started the movement, 
when I've interacted with them and heard their sermons, they are preaching the gospel. So perhaps you could make a statement of saying, I don't agree with them. They are not in my denomination. I am not a seventh-day Saturday keeper. But they are brethren. I'm going to lend them the building. And he did. And I'm happy he did it. He had already come to that conclusion. Timothy Dolan. (laughs) You know who Timothy Dolan is? Famous guy. More famous than probably many of the preachers we know. He is the Roman Catholic Cardinal of New York. A friend of mine who's a Roman Catholic, and I hold him to be a brother, sent me the eulogy that Timothy Dolan wrote about Tim Keller. I cannot read it to you, but I'll say three things that stood out. He eulogized Tim Keller because of his distinct evangelical identification. He's a Roman Catholic. He eulogized Keller because of his distinct gospel preaching. And he eulogized Keller because of his distinct Calvinism. He said, what? Who wrote this? This was not R.C. Sproul who was with the Lord who wrote it. This was a Roman Catholic bishop. Interesting. It's a reminder that those who are saved are not the ones who are exactly of our same persuasion. I'm not saying with that that I'm an ecumenical, syncretist person. Because unity must be based on the truth. The text says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is over all. And what is that God? John 17 defines him as the only true God and the Father of Jesus Christ. So whatever it is, it is the God of Scripture the God of Christ, the Father of the Lord, the redeeming God through His Son. My point is that you don't have to be an ecumenical, and I am not. You don't have to be a syncretist, and I am not. But that old aphorism holds true, more true than what we are willing to accept. That in essentials, we must have unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in the rest of the things, charity. A sectarian, cultic, I'm alone, I'm saved, I'm alone, I'm doing things right. You know what the sign of is? That you don't read enough. I read that the other day from someone. He says, you know what's the problem with people who don't read enough? That they think they are right. (laughs) That they are always right. Because if they are only full of their own thoughts, they are the only ones who are right. My exhortation is, that without throwing the baby with the bath water, that we remember what unity, unity and harmony demand. Unity demands humility, esteeming others as better than ourselves. <laughs> I know a bishop who used to play basketball with us back in the day. He is known for his scholarly knowledge of Scripture. One of my friends gave me the compliment of saying, the only two guys I know who know so much Bible are you and Bishop such and such. Maybe he knows more than me because I don't feel at that level. The The interesting thing is that I don't agree with the doctrinal statements of the church of that bishop. I don't. For the life of me, I could not be a Roman Catholic. I could not be. I could not even hold a service together with a priest. Because there are so many things we have different. However, that doesn't mean 
that that bishop, if he is Christ-centered, God-centered, seeking the will of God in Scripture and rejecting the things in his church that are not biblical, he's not better than me. Unity requires a forbearing spirit, being patient with one another, being gentle with one another, just as Christ is. Sometimes I, actually a neurologist told me that I have something called hypernesia or whatever it is. It's like you have long memories that go way back. And, and I told him I have memories of me crawling with my dad. Sounds, sounds like a lie, but I checked them with my mom. There's a lot of things that I was not even two years old, and I remember. And that is a curse because you remember a lot of things of your youth. That psalm of remember not the sins of my youth, it's in my mouth frequently. And I remember my arrogance. I remember my cultic spirit. I remember my sending anyone and everyone to hell who was not a fundamentalist, Arminian, Baptist, as I was. I would send myself to hell 40 years ago. What did God do? He waited patiently on me and opened my eyes. Unity requires a forbearing spirit and a forgiving spirit, just as Christ forgave us. Because it is so easy to get offended at little things. Oh, we don't want you to do this when you preach. Oh, we don't want you to act this way when you sing. Oh, we don't want you to turn the lights on or turn them off. And we raise a battle over that. When what we should have is a forgiving, forbearing, meek spirit. Just consider that Christ paid for all of our sins. And I don't know any greater sinner than me. But perhaps you say the same about you. That's because you don't know me. Because if you really don't think it that way, if you really say, well, I'm a sinner, but not like you, then perhaps you haven't gotten the deal. Perhaps you haven't really understood what the gospel means and what that holy God in that new hymn we sang means. That he can find fault even in his angels. Unity is not conflict avoidance for the record. It is conflict resolution. Because of Christ, truth must be spoken, but in love. So unity is not, well, I will not tell you what I believe so we can be united. No. Unity is, this is what I believe. This is what I'm, my persuasion from Scripture is. And so help me God, my conscience is bound to that. If you see a different, explain it to me, but I cannot see it any different. Now, that truth that divides, because truth divides, must be spoken in love. And unity is not uniformity. Some pastors, I was one of them back in the day, want to have everything tight, conformed to this system. And woe is thee if you see it differently. 
Woe is thee if you challenge my statement or my preaching or whatever it is. No, unity is not uniformity. Unity is harmony in diversity. Unity is humbling ourselves for the cause of Christ and even for the truth, even as we are diverse. The triune God is the supreme example of unity. There is a Father who is over all. There is a Lord Jesus Christ from whom all things by whom and through him all things were made. And there is a Holy Spirit who comes from both Father and Son. And three persons are one God. And some people, and I'll say this kindly, some people even when they pray, they become Sabellianists, not knowing. They say, thank you, Father, for dying on the cross for us. The Father didn't die on the cross for us. Jesus died on the cross for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving your blood for us. The Holy Spirit didn't give any blood for us. It was Jesus who gave it. It was the Son who gave it. So we have to know our theology and understand that there is one God, but there are three distinct persons, and yet it's one God. And so we are called to be one in our diversity. Because unity finally requires self-denial. The hallmark of discipleship is not your doctrine. (laughs) It's not what church you go to. It's not a lot of things that we think are hallmarks of discipleship. Jesus said, Jesus, and I'm quoting him. If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him or her deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Unity requires a lot of that self-denial. I don't like it how it's done, but it's not my church. I don't like it how it's sung, but I'm not the singer. I don't like it how it's preached, but I am not the preacher. There's a lot of things I may not like, but for the sake of Christ, I am called to die to self and to live for my brethren because that is a statement from, John, from 1 John 3.16. Just as Christ died for us in love, so we are to die for our brethren. And that is the hallmark of discipleship, that we love the brethren. Behold how good, behold how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in harmony for their the Lord sends his blessing, even life forevermore. Amen. Amen. Father, take your word and apply it as you deem we needed to hear it. Use it for your purposes, for your glory, for your kingdom, and help us in humility and self-denial and meekness to preserve the truth and the unity in love. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.